welcome to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. During our program, we continue to cover a variety of hot topics in the sports medicine world and more. Today on six to eight weeks, we are joined by David Ferguson to talk all things cycling and biking. Biking has been around for, well, not as long as I thought, since 1817 when it was invented in Germany and was called the Swift Walker. At that point, it didn't even have pedals, but it did allow people to get places a little bit faster than before. In the last 200 years, there's clearly been a lot of innovation to the point where it is one of the more popular sports and recreational activities. In California, where we are, it is arguably the home of mountain biking, where bikes were made to take advantage of the trails in Marin County. On the other side of the Atlantic, road biking and racing is especially big, and David is a huge fan of all things like racing. Finally, in sports medicine, we are interested in the uses of cycling as a fitness tool, as well as a rehab instrument, especially in the early post-operative period, and want to understand the limits and risks of cycling, both the overuse and acute injuries. Dr. Ferguson is an orthopedic resident training at the Percival Pot Residency Program in London, and we had the privilege of meeting him last year when he came to the U.S. to observe our colleague, Nick Kolovas. Away from orthopedics, David is an incredibly keen cyclist and set a Guinness Book World Record during the pandemic, and he is a great guest to have on since there probably isn't anyone better in our circle of friends and colleagues to talk about the ups and downs of cycling. Welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining us on Six to Eight Weeks. I wanted to jump right into what I think is one of the most interesting things, and that's that you actually have a world record. What is it? Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's, it's a real pleasure. The, the world record that I have is shared with my wife, and it's the fastest married couple to circumnavigate the earth on two bicycles. So a bit of a mouthful, but that's what we're in the Guinness World Record book for. Now, are you in every Guinness Book of World Records? Like if I go down to the bookshop today and search under crazy things to do with your wife, is it in that section? It's a global brand. I think the headquarters are actually in London, but yeah, it's certainly in the French one. And definitely in the British one. And you, you can probably find it in any good bookstore near you. So that's the record we've got. The Guinness have very specific rules whenever you cycle. So you have to cycle 18,000 miles. You have to go in one direction the whole time. So either east to west or west to east. And you have to go through two antipodal points. And it's the antipodal points that really is difficult because we were setting it at the kind of the, the second wave of the coronavirus pandemic. So we set off when borders were just opening and trying to navigate a path that's antipodal was probably one of the hardest bits of the whole trip. For those of us that don't know what that big word means, me, what does antipodal mean? Imagine the earth and you take a big drawing needle, big drawing needle, and you're going to stick it through the center of the earth. Wherever it goes in and wherever it comes out, there are your antipodal points. And in round-the-world cycling terms, what that really means is you'll cycle through Madrid and through Wellington in New Zealand. That's the, that's the kind of trodden path that people do. If you try and find antipodal points when New Zealand is off the map and when you can't cycle anywhere, it's incredibly difficult. And what we actually ended up doing was cycling through a town called Gansey in Botswana, and the antipodal point of that is a few miles across Hawaii. So as part of our ride, we literally flew from Australia to Hawaii, rebuilt the bike, cycled across one of the islands, and then flew back on again. So it's a, it's a bit crazy, but that's technically what you have to do. It's about 35 kilometers across one of the islands that we had to do in order to go into the book. 
Yeah, it sounds really rough that during the second half of Corona, you went to Hawaii to ride a bike. That's <laughs> Did you decide to do this as a world record? Did you decide to do this as I'm going to ride around the world and then later realize, hey, we could set a world record by doing this? It had loads of planning, like three years plus of planning that got bumped by the pandemic. But I watched a documentary in 2008 by a guy called Mark Beaumont, and he was kind of the first person to, to popularize, if you will, this around the world cycling effort. And he did it in around 200 days. And through watching it and, and his journey and his experience, I thought it was just a phenomenal way to see the world, engage with different cultures. And from that, I in 2010, I cycled across the US from Los Angeles to New York with my best friend. Some of the best six weeks I have ever spent in my life. It was between medical school, just got on a bike and literally just rode 100 miles a day going east. And it was a, a phenomenal way to see the country. And the natural progression from that that I kept asking myself was, what next? What would be the ultimate? What would be kind of redefining what you could ever do on a bike? So that's where Round the World comes from. And fortunately, when I met my wife, I floated the idea. And instead of her running and being shocked, she said, do you know what? That sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm in. So that was the kind of make or break moment for us. Yeah, that's amazing. I assume she liked biking before all this and wasn't just somebody that got into it. She, honestly, she hadn't ridden a bike before I met her. I bought her one for Christmas, even though she's like, I, if you buy me a bike, I won't ride it. So I bought it anyway. And then we went for the first ride on Christmas Day, and she had a huge smile on her face at the end of it, and just bit by bit by bit got into it to the point where, and really her story's far more impressive than me. I've ridden for a long time, but to be able to do that with not many years of experience was fantastic. How many years was that from getting the bike to 18,000 miles? Twenty. 18 I bought the bike and in 2021 we set off so wow three, three pretty quick ramp up yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's you're right that is much more impressive than what you did what was the hardest part about the record setting or the ride was it the amount of time unanticipated things that happened we spoke to a few people who had done it because you kind of get into a community of people who are crazy minded similar addicts as you are and they said the weird thing is the physical side of it after the first few weeks you don't you notice it but it doesn't become the hardest part and what i certainly find was the toughest was trying to do it in the middle of a pandemic and having the powers that be opening borders at random times you know we we were sat in kenya two days before flying back to the uk and then australia opened so you rebook all of your flights you rechange everything and it took four flights to get across australia back to perth to start on the west coast and the hardest bit on all of it was keeping a mental focus there was a day in the northwest of spain cycled 60 miles we had another 60 to go guinness emailed to say that our route wouldn't be accepted unless we got across australia and you're twelve thousand miles into a ride many dollars into it so much emotional and physical effort and the chance that that wouldn't be recorded and it wouldn't come to fruition, but you still have to get on the bike. You still have to roll out of McDonald's, keep pedaling, find somewhere to sleep, get on the next day and just keep pushing, knowing that you don't have a cast iron guarantee was probably the very hardest part of the entire trip. Yeah, well, congratulations. It's really, really impressive. I have zero interest in ever competing for that. If I tell my wife, she might decide that this is a good idea. So I'm hoping maybe she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> um, now, I think 
biking has kind of reached a steady state where there's more bike lanes. Certainly in the U.S., I think it's reached a point where the commuters commute. We have a lot of recreational bikers. But what is it like in Europe where it seems to be more of a sport rather than a recreation? Certain parts of Europe, it's an absolute religion. Italy, Spain, parts of the U.K. as well, with, with a lot of good riders we've had. There's a huge push for a lot of places to come over to a more biking friendly way of commuting, particularly I live in London. So particularly London is a massive booming cycling city and that kind of permeates through all of Europe. You go to anywhere and, and it's a way of life for many people. It's how they commute, it's what they do. And for those people who like it, it's how, it's how they spend their time recreationally. And, you know, we have the Tour de France. I think it's the most watched sporting event each year in the world. It's one of the, the, the biggest things that we have. And that kind of sets the tone. Three weeks in the summer, it's a phenomenal thing to watch and be interested in, I find. And, and that kind of sets the standard for those who, who really like cycling. David, what do you think are the biggest health benefits of riding? And then uh, types of people do you think get the most benefit from it? The, the health benefits, cardiovascular, I think, is probably the first thing. And, you know, Stephen Burke. Blair has published extensively on this. There's a lot of work that's gone into the, the decrease in all-cause mortality with good cardiovascular fitness. And you jump on a bike and your legs are burning, your lungs are burning, but within a few days and a few weeks, your fitness level really comes up. And the chance to have such a good increase in cardiovascular fitness, but not something which may be difficult on your knees or your hips if you're someone who can't run or can't get out and do that exercise and something that isn't too too heavy of a load-bearing activity it's the cardiovascular but also the the strength and the the flexibility that you get from riding a bike it, it sounds daft but actually if you cycle often your legs they become so much more flexible than than they've ever been and your lower back and your core strength there's a lot of stability that you need in order to be able to ride a bike you know I, there, was, there was a great paper i was reading in jama 2021 reed larson i, I think they're a, a danish group but they took a, a group of diabetics and they find that those who had cycled for up to five years had a 40% reduction in all-cause mortality. So even just recreational cycling has a huge impact on people who we see very commonly. Yeah, I think it's from our standpoint, especially during the rehab process, it's great because it's so low low load. For the most part, it's safe, even if you're doing some mountain biking. And it's something that's very adjustable. You can ride for five minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, even up to 18,000 miles over six months. And for the most part, it's relatively safe. Now, that being said, this is a sports medicine and injury podcast. Out of curiosity, what do you think is a bigger deal? Do you think it's the acute injuries from falling off the bike or some of the overuse injuries that we see from bike riders? In terms of prevalence, it's the overuse is massive. You know, and that's something that you'll see many people come in. The nice thing about it is the overuse is relatively easy to control. You get a, a good bike fit, you gradually build up your load and your tolerance over weeks and months, and the overuse very easily can be controlled. The acute stuff, unfortunately, often isn't your fault often is something that happens. And if you're a person who likes to put a thin layer of lycra and a helmet on and go up a mountain and then come down it very quickly, unfortunately, when you come off, particularly if you don't have a lot of padding or if, or if you go in quickly, unfortunately, the injuries are quite severe. So it's something to always be mindful of and just to build up the, the, the confidence and the expertise before you really do anything crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. I, I know Drew wants to ask you about bike fitting because he can nerd out on, about his Peloton and exactly the seat height. But it is crazy <laughs> when you think about in the 1980s, people didn't wear helmets or they wore those little leather helmets. Yeah. 
And the fact that now it's a universally accepted thing to actually just put on a helmet really is quite a change. The flip side to that, and it's largely obviously beneficial, is that we see so many upper extremity injuries, clavicle fractures, proximal humerus fractures, and elbow fractures. But I do think it's also allowed us to transition to understand how quickly we can get people back on a bike after some of these injuries, how quickly we can get people back to work. So I'm going to turn it over to Drew, though, because I know he wants to ask how to fit his Peloton so he can ride more. (laughs) Well, Dave, you mentioned bike fit and how important is that? And what do you tell people who are interested in cycling, like the best approaches and how necessary it is? It's critical, right? It's it's easy to ignore it. It's easy to jump on a bike and you feel good and you're having fun. But I liken it to, to running in the wrong size shoes. So you can get out and you can start doing it, but you're going to suffer. And Really, I I can give you a three-step guide to how you can do a bike fit. Anybody can do this, and it means that you just get on a bike and and, and you can dial in exactly where you want to be afterwards. So get get a camera, get a smartphone, and just set it up so you record the bike. Sit on your bike and just make sure that you've got about a 10-degree bend at your knee and you have a foot position which feels comfortable with your foot on the pedal on one leg. And that's the first thing that we will define. That's your saddle height. You will play with it by a few mil up and down, but you have a good saddle height, a mark around the saddle, mark around the stem, so you know exactly where you're going to be. The second part you're going to do is the layback. So that's how far forwards or backwards your saddle is going to be. Sit on the bike, drop a plumb line from your patella all the way down, and that has to go through basically where your metatarsals are. So you can line that up and you know exactly how far forwards or backwards your seat should be. And the final thing is your reach, how far forwards you want. And this is much more subjective. Some people want to be way, way far forwards if you've got great flexibility and you can do that immediately. Fantastic. But if you're getting into it, definitely sit more upright, the sit and beg position, that's completely fine. And as you become more accustomed to it, you can dial in that position. And I ride a lot and we have to travel backwards and forwards to Europe. And every bike, I make a mark around exactly where the positions are. Because you find even a couple of mils of the seat being too high or too low or too forward or too back really has a big impact on what you're doing. So that's why I say just film yourself, look at it, see how you sit. Some people prefer toe riding. Some people prefer heel riding in terms of the position during the pedal stroke. But if you get those three fundamentals right, you can then play with what you find makes it most comfortable for you. And, and I hope it works for you in the peloton. <laughs> What do you tell patients or friends and colleagues that have anterior knee pain, that feeling of pain underneath their kneecap when they're bike riding? What's the easiest solution for that? So it's really common. So you have to define exactly what it is. There's a lot of overuse anterior knee pain in cyclists. But I think what, what quite often happens is people come to us and they see us and it's generally an imbalance. It's a muscular imbalance. And as long as there's nothing significantly structurally wrong inside the knee and it's not swelling and it's not locking, as long as it's kind of relatively well-defined anterior knee pain that they can function through most of their activities of daily living. I'd say wind your tolerance down on the bike, start really gentle, really, really gentle, and just build up over a 12-week program. But you can't just cycle. You have to do core stability, and you have to work off the bike as well. It's If you look at a, a cyclist, it's generally just legs and glutes and, and nothing else to them. And and that's that's not good for the people that we see, unless you're professional, you need to get everything in balance. You need to make sure that you have the core stability and that you offload the knee appropriately. But if you get a pair of cleats on a bike, 
And it's not just the extension, but also the flexion that you're working your hamstrings in. You'll find you offload the knee hugely. And if you build that up progressively over, over a number of weeks, it's, it's really similar for lower back pain. It's the same kind of setup. You have to bring it right down a position that's comfortable for you. And then you start working from that and building it up. And that's why it's great. You know, at post-op patients, the hip and knee patients, as soon as you can get on a static bike, get going and just get that range of motion back and gradually build it up. And what about for people who are interested in just getting started with biking? Like, how do you advise them to develop a program and stick to it and what to focus on when just getting going? I think that there is a big trap or perhaps tendency for people to, to like cycling. You watch uh, a race or you go cycling with a friend and then you run out to the nearest store and you spend and you can spend thousands on carbon fiber stuff and things that look cool and, and really nice kit. I always say the best thing is just get a used bike. Somebody will give you one, borrow one, just get going and just find first of all, if you like it and if you don't. And you always should start with, start with a used bike, just get going and just build up. You shouldn't, I always say, never buy fancy kit, never get anything, get a good helmet and make sure you can route yourself appropriately, get some good routing software on the bike. And that's all that you need and just go out and enjoy it. Find a friend, ride to a canyon, go on the road, do whatever it is that you like that brings you the enjoyment. And my dad's a classic example. He was 67, hadn't really ridden and I dragged him out on a bike he enjoyed it. And then from there, we got to use bike, which is gradually built up. And I think that's that's the best way to do it. And actually, if you do that, it becomes rewarding. As you get into cycling more and more, you find cool bits on your bike and you find different things and different parts that you can have. And all of the, the trinketry around bespoking your bike and getting it set up for you comes later down the line. But just get on it, go and enjoy, go visit people. The freedom, you remember as a kid, the, the first time you got on a bike, and that immense sense of freedom that you had, you can go to your friends, you can go somewhere where you can never previously go. And if you have that and that curiosity and the enjoyment, you can just build naturally from that. So I'd always cancel that way. It shouldn't be expensive. You shouldn't spend loads of money. Just go and enjoy it and gradually build up. Yeah, I remember the first time I was on a bike, I fell down. So thanks for that memory, David. <laughs> 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 it was a peloton too. It was really embarrassing. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. So do your best to answer these in just a few sentences and hopefully they won't be too embarrassing. So first of all, mountain biking, which was invented in California, right, right down the street from where Drew lives or road biking, which one is better? Mountain biking, whenever you're doing it, it's, it's unbelievable fun. Road biking, when you've done it and you come back and look back at what you've done. It's very much a type two fun, but it becomes freakishly addictive. And for me, road biking is, I love it. What is the worst injury that you've had on a bike? And if it's too personal, it's okay to skip this question. I've been massively fortunate. I, I fell off quite a few times as a kid. It didn't do any bad damage. The worst and the most concerning thing for me was in Argentina on the ride, I was developing really bad carpal tunnel syndrome and not kind of you can manage, you can cope. I have zero sensation. I'm in agony every day and I have to ride 100 miles on really bumpy roads for the next four months. So that was the worst and a really concerning factor for me. But we worked on bike fit. We offloaded it. We got some aero bars. And after a few weeks, all of that settled. So that was that's the worst thing. Fortunately, nothing worse than that. Yeah, it sounds like you've been pretty lucky. So what's your take on some of the fitness crazes that at least in the U.S. are pretty common, such as Pelotons and SoulCycle? 
Peloton is amazing. I wish I'd invested in it at a certain time because <laughs> it had an incredible financial story. Uh, not so good now. I think with these things, if it works for you and if you enjoy it, go for it. You know, I think the community that you have in cycling, particularly the online community, people, and the way they build the programs are absolutely fantastic. It's pretty expensive. But if it's something that, that you can afford and, and that you like, I think they're wonderful. And they get people who otherwise wouldn't be cycling or running or doing something indoors. It, it kind of brings them in that into that community. And after you've got the fitness on a Peloton, you can then develop it. You can go, you can go outside on your bike. So I think I think they're fantastic. It's, it's a really good addition to the fitness plethora we have. Who is your favorite bike rider other than your wife? That's understood. And why? <laughs> Uh, my favorite rider is her favorite rider. There's a guy called Tade Pogaccia who is an absolutely unbelievable rider. I think he's 24. He's won the Tour de France twice. And it, it, it's what he can do on the bike, but it's the enjoyment that he gets whilst doing it. And I think we're in an, we're in an amazing position in cycling. If you look back to, say, when Jordan was at his heyday, or those kind of people. I think watching Tade Pogacic at the minute is watching a, a global superstar who's going to redefine cycling going forwards. He is a one-day specialist. He can do the Belgians. He can do the Italian one-days. He's won the Tour de France twice. He's just yesterday announced he's doing the Giro d'Italia, and he's an incredibly versatile rider. But I've had the privilege of going and watching him come over the top of an Alp, and you know he's 130 kilometers into a stage, you see the guys coming up through the valley and they are just so far into the red zone when they come past you. It's, it's all like a motorbike. And then they're straight down the Alp and onto the next one. So watching him ride, watching what he does is, is incredible. And I look forward to following the rest of his journey. David, what's next? You know, you've done this amazing around the world trip. Like, do you have any other plans for big adventures coming up? We recently had a, a daughter and I think we're really fortunate I, in residency to have that time out of program, six months out of program is a big thing. And I'm very grateful to my director for allowing that. That scratched a massive itch for us. But my wife and I have always said, when we retire, if we can find time in however many years it is down the line, we'd like to ride around again, but take it a little more slowly this time and maybe take a year off and, and go and do another ride at that point. So finish training, uh, start my start my consultancy attending job. And that's kind of on the horizon at the moment. Nice. That sounds great. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Six to Eight Weeks, Perspectives on Sports Medicines. We'd love to hear your thoughts on anything we discussed today and look forward to having you for the next episode. Brilliant. Thank you very much. It's, I, I, thanks I, for I, doing I, this. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right. Good luck, David. Thanks for listening to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. What do you think of this topic? Connect with us now. In addition to finding our contact form, you'll also find our social media links in our entire six to eight weeks episode archive. Help us grow our listenership by liking, subscribing, and sharing everywhere. We're eager to hear from you, and we'll be sending you more great thought-provoking content in less than six to eight weeks.